So we're in a new series this morning in uh, the book of 1 Peter, and this morning we're going to do kind of a big overview of, of who Peter is. I've been a subscriber to Christianity Today for the past 10 years. I can't say that I just completely love the magazine, but I, I, I get it, and I always read without fail the last article in the magazine, and I always read it once or twice or three times. I love the last article because the last article is always a testimonial of how somebody came to know Christ. And these testimonials obviously are, are all different. Some of them are dramatic and gut-wrenching. Others are, are sort of peaceful and quiet. But what I love about each one is the transformational aspect of the stories. Every story features some aspect of transformation. One such story is the account of this guy, Abbas Hamid. Fifteen years ago, he was an Iraqi interpreter. He was assigned to the uh, Army's 82nd Airborne Division, and he met in 2007 Sergeant Scott Young. And he noticed something about Sergeant Young. Sergeant Young always had this big bulging thing on his thigh, pocket, and in that pocket he had a Bible. Didn't know what it was at the time, but Abbas noticed that he would take the Bible out at odd moments and he would underline things and put it back in there. And one, one day he said, what is that you're reading? And he, he said, it's, it's, it's my Bible. He said, do you want a copy? And Abbas said, yes, I'd, I'd like a copy. And so the sergeant and the interpreter began to read the Bible together. Now, Abbas was not a, not a believer. He was a, he was a Muslim. He was not a particularly observant Muslim, but he was a Muslim. And uh, as time went on, he became fascinated by what he found in the scriptures. And then Abbas's father died, tragically, horribly. And Abbas was, was angry at himself for not being there when his dad died. He went back to Sergeant Young and he said, I, I want to become a Christian. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Well, there's a program now in the army where interpreters who serve faithfully can, can apply for U.S. citizenship. And uh, Abbas applied. He now lives in Lancaster, Virginia, and he's, he's, he's sharing his faith with Muslims, leading Muslims to Christ. Now, I love stories of transformation like that because every story, every story is, is unique to that person, but every story has at its core the cross and the event in which that person came to grips with what Jesus did on the cross transformation. As you know, um, transformation is the central promise of the Christian life. You come to Christ and you will be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are continuously being transformed. That's the, the promise and the hope of the Christian life is that I won't just become socialized into the Christian faith. I will be transformed into somebody like Jesus. And how awesome is that? And that's the word that we champion at Grace Community Church. We champion that word transformation. The central vision that we have as a church is that we want to be a body that is transformed, and we want to be people who individually are encountering transformation. And we love transformation. Transformation is a messy process. Transformation is a joyful process. Sometimes it's orderly, you know, you got the eight Beatitudes and you got the nine fruits of the Spirit, you know, fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes it's orderly. Sometimes it's messy. We love the whole thing. Transformation is a process. 
that will come to fruition when we come to see Jesus face-to-face in heaven. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be complete in a way, but really for all eternity, we will still be continuously transformed because you cannot be a finite being in the presence of a holy God and not be continuously transformed. So your job description as a follower of Jesus here and in heaven is to encounter the continuous transformation that comes from knowing, knowing Christ. And so uh, I want to tell you the original transformation story in um, the story of Peter, because Peter is presented in the New Testament as a model for transformation. And then we see how he extends that in his book. So Peter uh, was, was Jesus' lead disciple. Uh, Peter, in about AD 64, writes his book. It's probably after the death of the Apostle Paul. I'm following N.T. Wright on that. Paul dies. Peter writes his book. And uh, Peter it has a very specific agenda in writing his book that has to do with transformation in the presence of trials and problems and afflictions. So we're going to talk about that in that series. That's what we're going to call the series True Grit. Because grit is a term that I've, I've started to really embrace for my life. I'll say more about that in a second. Grit is the kind of, of attitude that Peter manifests consistently in his book. It's grit empowered by the grace of God. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to dig into Peter's life and, and show you what kind of a guy he was and how transformation works. So we'll start with Peter's, Peter's life. He was, a, he was a fisherman by trade. Um, how many of you love to fish? How many of you love to fish? Every time you, got, you, you catch a fish, every time? Nope, you don't. Fishing by nature requires a tremendous amount of grit. He was fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a beautiful, large freshwater lake, lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's also called Kinnereth, and Kinnereth means that something is shaped like a harp, and the Sea of Galilee was indeed shaped like a harp. It's 13 miles long, 150 feet deep. It sits inside a bowl of land. It is teeming with fish. It has 18 species of fish, but it was a very unpredictable place, and sudden storms could come up, and those sudden storms could rock your boat and rock your, your world because it was choppy. And if the boat began to take on water. There was no flotation inside those boats like a Zodiac. We were in a, in a Zodiac doing some whale watching while we were on vacation. And the Zodiac had all sorts of safety procedures in that boat. They didn't have those back in the ancient world. You got into a storm and you were, I mean, it was deadly serious. This was also a, a very competitive place. There were 15 harbors and it's a little bit like, you know, the competition in Deadliest Catch. Anybody see Deadliest Catch? I, I love Deadliest Catch. I wouldn't want to do that as my job, but I like watching people do dangerous things. And Deadliest Catch is very competitive. It's very competitive. And it was competitive on the Sea of Galilee back, back in Peter's day. If you were a fisherman, you were one tough cookie in the ancient world. Peter's family not only, not only survived, they thrived. Before we meet Peter in the Gospels, the family moved the, the business from 
Bethsaida to Capernaum, a prosperous town. And Luke tells us that, that they didn't have just, just one boat. They had a whole fleet of boats. And from that fact, I think we can deduce that they weren't just good fishermen. They were good businessmen. So the major city for salting and shipping fish was Magdala. And what they would do is they would take the fish, they would send them to Magdala, they would salt the fish in Magdala, and would send those fish all over the Roman world. Peter's fish were likely ending up in spaces all over the world, including Rome. He was a major international businessman located on the Sea of Galilee. Big, tough guy with international business ties. In addition to being a competent fisherman, he was also a family man. Sometime prior to meeting Jesus, Peter got married, and then Peter's dad apparently dies, and the law of primogenitor kicks in. The law of primogenitor says that if the father dies, the 100% of the estate gets passed on to the oldest son. We don't have that today, but that's the way it worked in the ancient world. So Peter's dad dies. The entire business gets transferred over to Peter, and so Peter takes in the whole family. Andrew's living with him, his mother-in-law's living with him, whole, whole group underneath Peter's roof, and he is a committed family man. It's about that time that Jesus came into their lives. So Peter and family were down in Jericho, and they were down in Jericho for one of the family feasts, one of the, one of the Jewish feasts. And Peter, uh, Peter's brother Andrew, goes, and he hears about this guy named Jesus, you know, and he's baptizing beyond the Jordan River in the Jericho area. I'm going to go see this guy. He goes to see Jesus. He's blown away by what he hears of Jesus. So he goes back to Peter, and Peter is staying somewhere in Jericho, maybe the you know, Holiday Inn in Jericho or something like that. Knocks on Peter's door and says, Peter, bro, you got to hear this guy. This guy is amazing. Peter says, yeah, yeah. No, no, seriously, brother, you're coming with me. And I want, I want to show you this guy. So they trudge over to the place beyond the Jordan, outside Jericho, and Peter hears Jesus, and Peter comes to know Jesus as, as well. And Jesus does something transformative for Peter right away. He changes his name. He says, you know, you're, you're Simon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name you Cephas, Peter, the rock. Now, Jesus does that because Jesus is the new Adam. You know, remember the original Adam named the animals. And the way that God taught Adam leadership was through naming things. And now Peter is, is being led by Jesus, and Jesus is saying, you, you were Simon. I'm going to name you Rock because that's the transformed character that you're going to have. Now, Peter's not there yet, as we'll see, but he would, he would get there. And Peter becomes the, uh, the leader of the apostles, the leader of the disciples, and then he becomes the spokesperson for the disciples as well. Now, let's just drill down into his, into his personality. What was, he, what was he like? I mean, what was he really, we don't have any pictures of him, but we know that he was a big guy. I mean, physically big and imposing, and we know he was strong. I say that because in one of the stories, John 21, that Josh covered a while back, uh, Jesus says, go get some fish. Peter goes down to the shore, grabs a net that none of the rest of the disciples could pull in, grabs that net of 153 fish, 
and he puts it around his back and he marches back up to where that fire was. Like he's bigger and stronger and more built than the rest of the disciples. I've read a bunch of biographies of Peter, of, 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 of Peter and Paul and the disciples, and they, they all point to John 21 as evidence. This is a big guy, big and physically imposing. He also had a strong personality in the sense that he was a risk taker. Uh, one day, this guy who was uh, like used to the water decides, I'm, I'm going I'm to walk on the water. So, uh, so one day, they, the disciples are seeing something like crazy, Jesus walking on the water. You know, the reason why Jesus walked in the water, because Jesus was saying, you know, I'm not just the new, new Adam, I'm the new Moses. Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus does one better. He walks on top of the water, proving that he is better than Moses. So Peter, the risk taker says, the big risk taker says, if that's really you, <clears throat> command me to walk in the water. All right, Jesus said, come on, come on. He steps out of the, out of the boat, steadies himself on the water, begins to take a, a few steps and looks around. Like, what am I doing? This is crazy. And then he begins to sink into the water. He's a big guy and he's a risk taker. He's a risk taker. We also see that Peter uh, wanted to remain in control other than rely on, on Jesus. You know how in our day, we, people will have concealed carry permits Peter is doing the concealed carry thing at the Lord's Supper. We know that because um, he has a sword with him when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Peter, you know, he, he, I'm going to grab this sword. I'm going to put it underneath my tunic. Nobody's going to know. And there at the Last Supper, he's packing heat. He's got, he's got, the, got the sword beneath his, beneath his tunic. He wants to remain in control. Even if, even if it means secretly carrying the sword. So when he gets arrested, you know, he takes out that sword, whips out that sword. Now, he's a fisherman, not a swordsman, right? He's a, and he takes that sword, and he's not very good at the sword. I'm assuming he wants to split the high priest slave down the middle, Malchus, you know, boom, mal on one side, cuss on the other. <laughs> boom, I'm going to split this guy down the middle. He's not a good swordsman. Malchus, you know, moves his head, and he slices his ear off. I don't think he meant to slice his ear off. I think he meant to kill him. I mean, he wants to stay in control, even if nobody else is going to, uh, going to ramp up power. He's, he's going to do it. So here's this big, powerful man with a larger-than-life personality, and it's wrapped around a core of weakness. Big and blustery on the outside, weak, and vulnerable on the inside. Any of you in this room like that? You step up, adequacy and power in public. You're strong, competent in public. And yet secretly, if anybody really knew you, they would know that there is, there is some weakness and vulnerability inside that big blustery facade that you put on. Well, if that's you, welcome to Peter's life because that's, that's Peter's life. Then comes the event that changed everything, which was the resurrection. I want you to imagine the upper room, the place, the Last Supper. Remember that upper room? Last Supper celebrated there. Now they're gathered there on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit comes in like a mighty, rushing, 
wind. And the 120 people who were there, they began speaking in other languages and they walked down the steps from the upper room. They walked toward the Temple Mount. They walked up the steps to the Temple Mount. There's what the Temple steps look like today. It's a little bit washed out in that picture, but it's what they look like today. And Peter begins to preach at the top of those Temple steps to the to the thousands, literally tens of thousands of people walking up those steps. And he begins to preach a very powerful message. And it is so powerful that he says, you crucified your Messiah. Now, where's the, where's the fear? He denied Jesus three times a couple of days, you know, weeks before. Where's the fear? Where, where, where's, the, where's the intimidation? You know, where, where, where was all of that, that quirkiness, that awkwardness in Peter? Well, that, well, now the resurrection has shifted Peter so that now he is truly functioning according to his identity as, as the rock. His boldness doesn't just end at the temple steps. A few chapters later, Peter's confronting the religious leaders again. This time it's in the halls of power, which, which are the Antonio Fortress. This is not, it doesn't exist anymore in Jerusalem, but that's what, it, that's what it looked like. Now he's in the halls of power. This is where Pontius Pilate lived when he was in Jerusalem. This is where uh, the people, the, the ruling elite were. And he's in the halls of, of power, and he says things like, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We've got to obey God rather than obey men. Here's a person who was one way before the resurrection. He's another way after the resurrection. One way before the filling of the Spirit, another way after the filling of the Spirit. Here's a man who is now evidencing significant transformation. And again, I think Peter's transformation has been hugely encouraging down through the centuries. Because all of us know what we were like before we came to Christ. Some of us can say, I know what I was like before I encountered the Spirit in a fresh way, and now I know what I'm like after walking in the fullness of the Spirit for a number of weeks or years or decades. And you, you know the before, you know the after, you know the transforming effect of the resurrection, you know the transforming effect of the filling of the Spirit, and you, you love the transformed life. That's the example of the, the Apostle Peter. Now, <clears throat> um, after Acts 15, we, we begin to lose track of Peter because the focus of the book of Acts from Acts 15 on is about, is about the Apostle Paul. But here's what we know from, from the Bible. We, we know that Peter and his wife traveled as a team hiking extensively throughout Asia Minor. I'll show you a map of that in just a second. And during that time, they sustained a church planting ministry in northern Asia Minor, in the region of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he's got some traveling companions with him. In addition to, to his wife, he has John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the guy who wrote the second gospel. And he has a guy named Silvanus, whose nickname is Silas. You know how nicknames work. My, my dad's first name is William. They call him Bill. My grandson's first name is William. They call him Liam. Silvanus's nickname is Silas. So Silas is traveling with Peter as they're doing this church planning, planning ministry. 
And so we see an interesting thing in 1 Peter 5, 13. He says, the church in Rome sends you greetings, and so does, my, uh, does Mark, my son. This is not his literal son. This is his son in the faith, John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the guy who wrote the second gospel. And so, so Mark becomes a traveling companion. But this guy is a disciple maker. Peter is discipling people in obedience to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So the church historian Eusebius tells us that um, as Peter and Mark traveled together, Mark took notes. So as Peter is preaching, talking about Jesus, Mark is patiently writing notes down. And what Mark did in the fullness of time was he wrote those notes into what we today say is the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. You know, Peter's a, he's a big action guy. You know, if he was taking the, the Clifton Strengths Finder, we would say that he was an activator. But John Mark is the guy who's writing all this stuff down. And if you read the gospel of Mark carefully, what you realize, it is the most precisely written literary masterpiece you can possibly imagine. It's, it's incredible. So Peter preaches and, and Mark writes. Mark is a, Mark is, is a mentee of the, of the apostle Peter. I want you to think about the amazing way that Peter died. Here's a painting by Caravaggio. Uh, rumor has it, tradition has it, that Peter was, was crucified upside down. And so we, we know that Jesus predicted that he would be crucified in John chapter 21. Well, when it gets to the time to be crucified, Peter says, oh, no, no. You guys aren't going to crucify me the way you crucified Jesus. I'm not good enough for that. You crucified him right side up. You got to crucify me upside down. So Peter, the guy who was big and blustery and bumbly and mistake-ridden before, becomes big and blustery and transformed and a real leader afterwards. So let's, let's pull back and grapple with the main idea of Peter's, Peter's life. If we get Peter's life into, into a big idea, what would it be? His life is, is an example of transformation through the resurrection and through the Spirit's power. He's one way before the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. He is another way after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. And the thing you can say about Peter is that he was transformed. Transformation is a big word. It's a word that, that promises big change. Remember a couple of years ago, uh, Extreme Makeover was a big, maybe it still is, but I mean, I remember several, maybe 10 years ago, Extreme Makeover was a big thing. Everybody wanted to be transformed physically. And Peter's a guy who was transformed in a whole body way by the resurrection of Jesus and by the coming of the Spirit. But it wasn't just transformation. It's transformation marked by humility. And here's the reason why I say it was marked by humility. Peter was the leader of the apostles during Jesus' ministry. But you know what? He, he soon takes second place to the apostle James. Now th think about that for, for a second. Peter begins to travel. Somebody's got to lead the folks staying in Jerusalem, and that person is James. James is the one who does that. And so Peter begins to take second place to James, and then Peter takes second place 
to the Apostle Paul. Peter's going and blowing big time in Acts 1 through 15. And then Paul comes along. And the focus of Luke in writing is now about the ministry of Paul. And Paul's this big letter writer. And so most of the New Testament letters are written by Paul. Peter only writes a few of them. So here's a guy who was the big leader, but now in humility, he has to accept the fact that I'm, I'm not in first place, humanly speaking. I've got other people who are leading in my stead. And so Peter, Peter's life is transformation marked by humility. So here, here's the main idea. When you genuinely encounter Jesus, he will transform you. And your transformation will be marked by humility that receives power, especially when life is hard, especially when things are difficult and they go south. It's transformation marked by humility. So that's his life. Let's, let's take a brief look at his book. Peter writes to people who are beginning to encounter suffering. Now, remember I said Peter is writing in the, the peninsula of, called Anatolia. We call it modern-day Turkey today. It's the Anatolian Peninsula, and he's, and he's writing to people in the northern areas there, Pontius, Bithynia, Phrygia, and so on. And he's doing a church planting ministry there. Now, when he's writing, Emperor Nero is on the throne. And Nero was, uh, was an interesting guy. Here's a, here's a statue and an artist rendition of Nero. Again, there, there, there's a statue and there's the artist's rendition of Emperor Nero. So Nero starts off extremely well. Uh, he comes to power at the age of 16 in 54 AD. His first four years are great. And he has a speechwriter. And a speechwriter is uh, are two people, Seneca and Burrus. Two amazing writers, two amazing philosophers. And he's being led by these guys, and it's going great until he turns 22. And then he goes off the rails. He fires his advisor. He kills his mother. Uh, he, uh, uh, he begins to engage in some outrageous persecutions. And in mid-July of 63 AD, Nero is frustrated that certain neighborhoods in Rome cannot be updated and upgraded. And so, rumor has it, tradition has it, he sets fire to those areas and they burn up. You know, maybe you've heard about uh, him playing the fiddle while Rome burned. You know, there's, there's, some, there's some interesting traditions that suggest that may have, may have happened. But Nero blames the Christians. So all those people who, you know, read the book of Romans, all those people who were mentioned in the book of Romans, many of them were subject to intense persecution. Like, among other things, he doused some of them with oil and set them afire as human torches to light the night. He's a sick guy. He's a sick in individual. So historian N.T. Wright suggests that Paul probably died the year following the intense persecution by Nero in, in Rome. And then the question comes, okay, so who is going to lead the Christian movement? Who's going to prepare believers for suffering? Who's going to write the next book? You know, Peter talks about Paul's letters, you know, he says, guys, some of Paul's letters are sort of hard to understand. Who's going to continue to write letters to encourage the, the Christian church? So um, 
That's a great question. You know, Peter's ready to write, but he's not a man of letters. He's a man of uh, action. Writing is natural to Paul, not so much to Peter. If he's going to write, he needs some help. So fortunately, he has, he has two authors who are traveling with him. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Silas, or Silvanus, who co-wrote some books with Paul. So I want you to imagine Paul, uh, uh, Peter, and Silvanus at a local Starbucks in Rome. Kind of go with me on this. At the Starbucks, you know, Peter, none of this frou-frou coffee stuff, you know. He's like got a, got a dark roast, you know, black coffee. He, and, and Sylvanus says, okay, Peter, um, what do you feel God calling you to write? I want to help you. So Peter starts talking about some ideas. I want to, I want to talk about suffering and persecution that's coming. I want, I want to talk about our identity in Christ. I want to talk about how leadership is so important. Silas begins writing some things down, and pretty soon they, they've got the beginnings of a, of a book going. And Peter is, is on a roll. He's talking about stuff, and he's talking about ideas, and, and Silas is on his laptop, you know, furiously knocking out this book. And in the end, the book of 1 Peter is beautifully, pristinely written, Koine Greek, beautifully written, beautifully, beautifully arranged. That actually has had a lot of scholars doubt that Peter wrote the book because you look at 2 Peter and it's a completely different form of writing than 1 Peter is. Well, there's an easy answer to that. Silas collaborated with Peter in the first book and apparently he didn't in the second book. Peter may have had to write it, write it himself or maybe he had another collaborator work with him. But the idea is that this is a beautifully, beautifully written book. And here's the key idea in the book. The question is, how can Christians endure hardship with the kind of grit and grace that brings about their growth and draws others to Christ? See, this is a book about overcoming adversity, overcoming trials and pain and persecution and difficulty. How, how can believers endure the hardships that are coming with grit and grace so that we grow and others are drawn to Christ as well. That's the idea. Let me, give you, let me, let me kind of delve into, the, into, into that. So here's a big complicated chart, but I'll simplify it for you. What Peter does is write with six concentric circles. The innermost circle is the theme. And the theme is about grit and grace. It's about doing hard things in the power of the Spirit. It's about persevering in the power that God would give to us. It's, it's about grit and grace. We're called to do hard things. And then he's going to apply that to our relationship with God, to our relationship with believers, to our relationship with the world. Then he's going to apply it to suffering. Then he's going to apply it to the future. So it's taking our core identity in Christ and then applying it to the common areas that we deal with in our life. And so Peter is, is trying to tell us, guys, it's, it's about doing hard things, not in your own power, but in the power that God, that God provides. That's why this book is such an exciting book, and I think such a, a relevant book to this, this season of our, of our, of our, of our history. So um, here's, here's the core idea, true grit. This is our title for the series, True Grit, Applying Your Identity in Christ to the Most Important Areas of, of Life. 
So <clears throat> we see kind of an interesting statement about that in 512. He says this, by Silvanus, I have written to you exhorting, briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So you can see how this is a, a grit thing and a, and a grace thing. I have written to you exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. That's grace part. That's the power part. He said, well, guys, what I'm saying, especially in the first 12 verses, that's where the power comes from. It comes from your identity in Christ. Stand firm in that identity. Stand firm in it. That's where the grit comes. It's perseverance in pursuit of a good thing that comes from the power of the Spirit. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some, uh, some applications. But here, here's, here's the big idea. We, we grow through a combination of grit and grace. Look, I know people who say, I don't, I don't want to go through grit. I want God to supernaturally always supernaturally, miraculously deliver me from hard things. Now, God always wants you to live in the supernatural. Hear me on this. Sometimes it's God's will that you go through hard things. It's God's will that you go through hard things. Did you hear that? Sometimes it is God's will that you go through hard things. Many of the people whom we highly respect are people who went through hard things and they got wisdom from those hard things and now they can impart that wisdom to us so that we can go through hard things as well. So growth comes through a combination of grit, doing those hard things in the power that God provides. How will you know about power unless you go through hard things that require power? How will, you, how will you know about living in the supernatural unless you go through hard things that require you to depend upon God in a supernatural way? Sometimes it is God's will that you go through hard things and learn to draw upon his power in those hard things. It's one of the reasons why I love our healing prayer ministry. Because people who come into our healing prayer ministry, they're going through a hard time. And it's, it's, it's our opportunity in healing prayer to pray with them through that hard time so that they can, they can encounter the miraculous presence of God to deal with their, with their struggles. So three takeaways from Peter's life. First takeaway is this. Being a follower of Jesus should result in a changed life. It should result in a changed life. Let me introduce you to a guy named Alan Langham. Alan Langham grew up in a terribly dysfunctional family in England. Alan Langham was abused physically by a family member. His mom died. His father beat him physically. He, it was a horrible thing. But he grew up realizing he was fantastic at rugby. So he signed on with the Sheffield team in England, and he made a vast amount of money. He goes from being a beaten and bruised but big guy to making a tremendous amount of money. Well, what did he do with it? He got into the criminal underworld in England. And he then got put in jail for a very, very long time. He said, I was a violent, hardened criminal lashing out on anybody who would cross me. One night he was going to commit suicide. Before he did the deed, he, he, he said to God, he said this, God, if you're real, if you're real, I ask that you would put a white dove outside my prison window. 
If you do that, I'll know that you're with me. God answered that prayer exactly the way he prayed it. God sent a white dove. It landed on the prison window. And Alan Langham um, came to Christ. Next day, he picked up a Bible and a Christian book. A Bible and a copy of Joyce Marfield's, Joyce Meyer's Battlefield for the Mind. And he stumbled across a chapter where she describes taking the sexual abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father. She says, I rolled it up into a ball and I placed it at Jesus' feet. He said, I'm going to do the same thing with my anger. I'm going to roll it up into a ball and I'm going to place it at Jesus' feet. And he, he did that. And he says, I was still deeply broken, but I was a changed man. And through discipleship and some good friends, he started to grow in Christ. Today, he reaches into the lowest of the low in urban communities all over the United Kingdom. Transformation in Christ because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Your life should be the same way. It should be marked by a changed life. A, I would add, continuously changed life. So um, I go back to 1st 2 Corinthians 3.18. Do you see in there, from one degree of glory to another? So that means, you know, your transformation doesn't just stop when you come to Jesus. Okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I'm good. No. Your transformation is designed to be a daily thing, a weekly thing, a monthly thing, a yearly thing, and people should see it. Like your wife should see it. Your husband should see it. Your kids should see it. So your life in Jesus should be marked by continuous transformation. And what we're committed to at Grace is providing those ministries that make that happen. I will tell you, it's messy. It's messy. Because the moment I want to be transformed, guess what God does? He puts something in my life that points out a problem. And now I've got to depend upon the Holy Spirit in a new way, a fresh way. Um, so let me give you a second takeaway. Authenticity is the key to spiritual influence. Authenticity is the key to spiritual, to spiritual influence. Look, um, Mark wrote from what Peter said. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 32 and 33, Mark records something Peter did that was very embarrassing. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, and turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not sitting in mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So if, if I were Peter, I would have said, Mark, oh, Mark, 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 Mark. Look, can we just take that out of your book? This is like super embarrassing. Don't, I mean, I'm, I'm the leader of the disciples. Don't put that in there. He didn't do that. He let that stand. If you're in the process of being transformed, you need to be telling people what you are being transformed from. And, you know, it's, it's okay if, you're, if it's little things, but it, it shouldn't always be about little things. I mean, life is not always about little things. You know, you, you saying, well, I'm... I'm being transformed from pride. Oh, that's good. But net it out for us. Like, what does that mean? What's the ugly part of it you are transformed from? There ought to be an area of authenticity there. And then thirdly, people in the, in, in the process of being transformed need grit. So I love, I love the idea of grit. Uh, Angela Duckworth has written a phenomenal book on grit. I've, I've read it twice. I need to probably read it again. 
But here's what she says. Grit is about having what some researchers call an ultimate concern, a goal. You care about so much it organizes and gives meaning to almost everything you do. Grit is holding steadfast to that goal even when you fall down, even when you screw up, even when progress is halting or slow. I will tell you that for many years, for many years, my main arena of grit was with my family because God had instilled in me, I want, I want to, I want this to be an important, under, under God, the most important thing in my life. I want to grit. You have an ultimate concern, and I'm, I'm telling you, it, it requires grit. Our, of course, our ultimate concern is following Christ, and that requires, that requires grit. And so as we go through this book, I, I would encourage you to expect that grit and grace are going to go together as we study the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 next week, and it will serve as the foundation for everything else he says. It's going to be, all be about our identity in Christ. Let's stand for our closing prayer.